Hi coaches, this is the final episode of season one. Uh, thank you for all the feedback over the last few months. I've already begun recording episodes for season two, which will kick off on August 7th. Today's interview with an expert is with Paul Drake of First Cardio Performance. Paul has spent the last several years immersing himself in the world of college tennis. He has worked with several of the top Division I college tennis programs, allowing them to train their athletes in a much more efficient manner, which has led to many remarkable results. In this podcast, we discuss conditioning and its influence on mental toughness, how programs with little to no budget can start tracking vital data on how to train their tennis players, conditioning on the bike rather than on the track, and how tennis players can recover quickly after a match or tough training session. This conversation builds upon my last interview with Nick Winkleman. We now have the science to back up the old cliche that less can in fact be more when it comes to training and coaching our athletes. I hope you will keep an open mind to the message Paul is sharing. Paul Drake, welcome to the ITA College Tennis Coaches Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, Dave. Well, it's great to have you here. This is the first in-person podcast I've ever done. I feel extremely honored well, and privileged to the, be here for the that. The honor is all mine. So lots to get into today. We'll try and keep it to an hour. I know sometimes you uh, have uh, lots of scientific information to share with the audience, but um, I'll try and keep you down to, to my level. I do. I do appreciate that. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> all right. So... Uh, you know, college tennis is obviously a small niche of the sports world. So, you know, given your background in cycling, how on earth did you end up in the college tennis space? That's a that's a that's a great question. It's also an interesting question. Um, I'll try and keep it as brief as possible. Uh, but essentially, uh, prior to getting involved with tennis, I had been working with DePaul University cycling program, and a friend of mine, her name is Sally Edwards, who uh, does heart rate monitoring systems, had brought me on as a consultant. And she had me doing a trip from uh, Seattle to uh, San Diego, uh, essentially talking about her system. Mm -hmm. And one of the last stops was at a gentleman's house just outside of San Francisco. His name was Ron Berg. And um, I met with him that uh, that evening and he was dealing with Parkinson's. And he had just gotten some funding to do a Parkinson's um, project. And what they were trying to show is that athletic performance or athletic uh, exercising in general delays the onset of Parkinson's disease. And they wanted to use this particular system that I was demoing uh, to to validate a lot of their their workouts. And so after several hours of working with him, he was absolutely fascinated uh, by heart rate and heart rate training. And he felt that I had a lot to offer to athletes. Now, Ron, Ron, at the time, Ron Berg's daughter, Hadley Berg, played for South Carolina. And so long story short, I was sent out there. I tested their team. We got some incredible results in that first year. And that just sort of opened the door to uh, collegiate tennis and working with tennis athletes. It was probably one of the furthest things away from cycling. Uh, but the bottom line is uh, the cardiovascular system is the same for all athletes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I just needed to understand the flow of tennis. And as soon as I understood the flow of tennis, I understood how to condition the cardiovascular system for performance. Mm -hmm. So how does that then in turn help uh, a player's results? They have a strong cardiovascular system. How have you seen it? you know, work for a college tennis team? Sure. You know, one of the, one of the big things that I, that I focus on specifically is recovery 
in between points. You've only got 30 seconds, roughly 30 seconds to recover in between points. So I, I focus specifically on that element. So I get them recovering faster. And then I have backend endurance added to it so that if a match goes into a third set, my players that are conditioned know they're going to literally outlast the other players. Why? Because they're recovering between each point better. They're bringing their heart rates down lower. They're making more cog- better cognitive decision-making is happening, less injuries. So there's a lot that goes to conditioning an athlete's cardiovascular system for peak performance. Mm-hmm. So why do you believe it's better to condition tennis players on a bike rather than on a track or on a field? Well, you know, one of the things that we've talked about over the years is just how much pounding we're putting on the court, on their bodies, the joints, the knees, the ankles, and these are the areas that get injured a lot too. So part of the reason we're on the bikes is because I'm trying to get directly at the cardiovascular system. I'm trying to train the heart specifically without putting too much stress on the body. So the bike is an easy way to get to that. Now, it also works on the level of training all your athletes in a group situation because you could train everybody at once and they can communicate, you can communicate. There's a lot of heart rate data going on during the actual workouts that's being back and forth. So it's stimulating the athletes from a, a mental point of view, as well as conditioning their their weak spots that we're trying to make stronger in terms of their cardiovascular system. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? No, it, it definitely makes sense. Um, you know, bike versus track versus field. I mean, I think a lot of coaches and myself included when I coached, we, we often used the, the, the track and those four meter, 400 meter runs to not just build them physically, but also try to build them mentally. And we wanted to see them actually suffer a little bit and go through some adversity and, and come out the other side. So if, if we're on the bikes and, and we're all together and, um, I understand that there'd be some tough workouts in there, but it, it, there's, there's just something about being on a field or a track that really, can kind of build those players mentally. So, so what would you say to that? Do you agree, disagree? Is there a place for those type of workouts? I think, I think, yeah, I think there's a time and a place to test the capacity, the mental capacity of an athlete. Mm-hmm. I think it could be done on the bike. I also could, it also could be done on the field. I don't, I don't necessarily have a problem with using the field as long as you're doing the right things on the field. It's much easier to control your environment for cardiovascular conditioning on a bike. Mm -hmm. But when you're weight bearing, it changes the heart rates a lot. So to get consistent zone training, if you're going to do zone training, which is what I do, Mm -hmm. uh, it's much easier to achieve that on the bike. Now, as far as mental toughness goes, I've seen athletes push themselves to exhaustion and some even throw up on the bike. Uh, I mean, there's no question how hard you can push yourself on the bike, mm-hmm. but I do believe there's time and a place for mental toughness, but it's not all that, you know, if you're monitoring the athlete's biometrics, in other words, monitoring their heart rate when they're training, you'll know if they're genuinely pushing themselves really hard or not. Mm-hmm. So there's no more guessing if right. you're using it. So it doesn't matter if it's on a bike and it doesn't matter if it's in a swimming pool or on a track, Mm -hmm. you know, as long as you're doing the right things to stimulate the cardiovascular system, you're, in my opinion, you're in the right ballpark. Mm -hmm. Now I prefer the bike because of blood flow. Cause when you're carrying all your extremities, there's a different, you're, 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 you're stressing the body in a different way. 
but that's just me and that's what's been highly successful. Mm -hmm. So, you know, until I tested and seen other things, I, I, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to stick with the bike. Yeah. And it it appears, I mean, that that's the thing as well, looking back on on my coaching career as well. I mean, some of the workouts, they were just way too long and, and, you know, uh, following your work a little bit and speaking with some of the coaches that you've worked with, your workouts are very efficient, right? I mean, it's not really going above 30 minutes very often. Is that right? No, we're not. And if you want to really put it into perspective, I can get the most out of a cardiovascular system in about 30 minutes a day, maybe four times a week Mm -hmm. and understand I do a 10 to 15 minute warm up with a five to 10 minute cool down. Mm-hmm. So think about how much actual time you're really stressing the system, maybe three or four minutes wow. in that workout. Right. It's mind blowing when you begin to understand if you can become really efficient and understand your athletes and know how to tweak them, you end up saving tons of time mm-hmm. and your results go through the roof and your your injuries are, are, are low. Your chronic injuries are are significantly no or none mm-hmm. which is incredible yeah which is which is what you've seen right over the last few years you've the, seen the teams that, that i've worked with right. have no chronic have no real chronic injuries that weren't pre-existing before i got there yeah and the other issue i think with, with conditioning tennis players as well like you know, i think even back to, to when i played and, and the coach would say okay you're doing whatever it is eight four hundred meters and well, the first six, I'm I'm holding back. You know, I'm just okay. I got to get right. to eight because you got to get to that number. You got to get to that number as opposed to what's really right. efficient for you. It right. might have only been two or three. Yeah. yeah, but but if you're not monitoring your athletes in terms of the biometric data and heart rate, right. then you don't know who's really suffering. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like. It's kind of like the, the the kid on the playground, you know, uh, when you were in grammar school and you did your fitness test or whatever, mm-hmm. you know, the, the heavy kid in the back is the slowest and he always got graded the lowest, you know, but the kid who got there first, you don't really know if he was actually pushing himself or not. Mm. But now if you're looking at heart rate, you might just find that the kid in the back was working twice as hard as the kid up front. Mm-hmm. So to put both those kids in the same type of training program would just be ignorant. Right. It's just flat out ignorant because you can't train all your athletes the same way. Mm-hmm. Just it's it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But but if you're following these metrics, then you could start to go, oh, okay, I could push this athlete today. I could back off on this athlete. I can go with this one. Mm-hmm. Now you're being specific to the athlete. So you're giving them what their body is asking them for and asking you for. So you know, you're sort of guiding that that process along in their cardiovascular development. Right. So what is kind of a starting point? So if there's a coach listening to this and, and they're interested in kind of learning a bit more and maybe experimenting on themselves and not investing a whole lot of money in it up front, um, you know, what, what would you advise and, and what numbers are they looking at and how should they use the data that they're collecting? Yeah, you know, it's, it's interestingly enough, there, there are plenty of free apps out there that can start you on the path of understanding uh, of how to use a heart rate monitor and and how to manipulate things Uh, there's not too much in terms of uh, educational like interpretation that that kind of doesn't exist but there are a couple books out there Mm -hmm. we we've talked before sally edwards the heart rate monitor book which is a really inexpensive book you can get it probably for three bucks on Mm -hmm. ebay or amazon right now and i think that is a great starting point just to sort of get your feet wet. Uh, in terms of the app, the Instant Heart Rate app is is an app that we use when we don't have a budget for heart rate monitors, mm-hmm. um, and that uses your finger on the phone. Now, 
it it's a little bit sensitive, but if you do it right and over time, you'll get a really good feel for it. That you can get some accurate resting heart rate readings. It's not good for during mm-hmm. heart rate. Yeah. So, and and you and I had talked about this uh, off mic earlier about when I first got introduced to the heart rate monitor. I, I told you I, I couldn't afford a heart rate monitor. Mm-hmm. I didn't have the money to do it. So I was literally, you know, taking my heart rate at my throat during performance or during training sessions to see what my heart rate was and watching how it would come down. And, you know, in between sets and, you know, longer sets and shorter sets, my heart, I would dictate when and how I would do intervals Mm -hmm. based on how the heart rate was moving during those sessions. That was free. It took, it took some creativity, but it's free. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing that the technology has, has obviously improved a great deal and it's a lot cheaper and, sure. and there's so many options out there, whether it's through your phone or buying a, a chest strap or, or a heart rate uh, monitor for your, for your wrist. Here's what I would say mm-hmm. um, for any coaches and, you know, that are struggling with the budget, but are really interested, call me and I'll give you some, I'll give you some suggestions yeah. on, on how to actually make it work without a budget. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, now you're going to have to feel your way through it, mm-hmm. you know, but at least you'll have some direction and understanding. And, and, and this is really important because I've managed this with teams when I coached uh, on the cycling side mm-hmm. without heart rate monitors. Yeah. And, you know, in, in the one case, you know, we started in our division, we were 47th in, in our division and we finished third in one season without heart rate monitors. Mm. So, but we were doing heart rate. Yeah. So we were, we're doing it manually, which yeah. believe me, using a heart rate monitor makes life much easier. Yeah. But yeah. there are options that are my point. Yeah. So if, if let's say I, I download that app and I'm taking my, my morning heart rate, you know, what, what, what then do I do with yeah, that? Exactly, that exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, exactly. So then it pops up as 49. Well, what do I, do that? I would say that's you're either pretty good if you're an athlete or you might be sick if you're not an athlete. <laughs> but but just put some parameters to what yeah. you're saying. Ideally, what I would recommend for every and I do this for every single athlete and every single coach, which I do recommend that the coaches go through the process. So if you're doing this, if you're getting this for your athletes, then you need to do it yourself because you need to experience it firsthand to understand the connection. But I always take a week's worth upfront. And you build an average to set your baseline. So whatever that is, just hypothetically, in your case, let's say it's 49 beats per minute. That's Mm -hmm. your average. Okay. So is 49 good? Is 49 bad? Mm -hmm. Well, it kind of depends on each individual and you have to understand that. Now, let's put it this way. If you're you're slightly overweight, you're in your 40s or 50s and you're registering 60s and 70s in your 70s, I mean, 60s and 70s in terms of your heart rate, um, and, and you don't really, and you're sedentary, that's about normal. Mm-hmm. Now, what I expect for an athlete and what I've seen is a typical range between 40 and 50 beats per minute uh, on a on a fit athlete that's been conditioned. Mm-hmm. A lot of the athletes that I work with, we usually start in the upper 50s. And over the course of a year, maybe two years, and in some cases, three years, the heart rate might drop as low as 38, 35, 34 beats per minute. Wow. And that's a significant sign of cardiovascular development. I know that these players can walk onto a court with anybody. And as long as their skill is similar, they will outplay that opponent. I can guarantee you that. Yeah. So, so if my, I, I, I take the heart rate for a week, uh, my average ends up being 49, say, and then whatever, two weeks in, 
I wake up and I'm I'm a 56. What what's probably going on? There's there? a, there's a couple different things that could be happening. Mm-hmm. So one could be deconditioning. One could be illness. Mm-hmm. One could be stress. You have to have a framework for your athlete. You just can't. One day isn't going to make or break the athlete. Okay. Typically, when you start to see heart rates declining. That means cardiovascular fitness is getting better, provided that they're working out on a regular basis and they have no health issues. Mm -hmm. Now, when you start to see heart rates move up, usually what I've seen is if you see anywhere between a three to six beat, roughly six beat uh, increase on any given day, that can be an over a reaching session from the day before. In other words, they push too hard the day before. They just need a little bit of time to recover because mm-hmm. they've jumped up. You know, right. if I see it above 10 or 15, that's usually an indication of illness. Okay. So that means something's coming up. Now, what does that tell you? Well, it gives us an opportunity to maybe catch an illness before it even hits and get them in for treatment and get everything taken care of, you know, and, and diminish their time off the court. Right. Right. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. So uh, I think at the, the ITA convention, you told the story of Fernanda Contreras, and, and you also talked about Paul Jubb. So Fernan, Fernanda at the uh, All-Americans and right. Paul Jubb at the NCAA tournament and how their numbers came came down. They just kept coming over, the over the course. Uh, and, yeah. And Can it, you retell those stories? Sure. Yeah. You know, and in the case of both of them, um, super athletes, great kids, and they, their bodies were so finely tuned that they were adjusting to the stress, but the way they were recovering and what the coaches were doing afterwards mm-hmm. with each of the athletes and what they were doing for themselves, you know, was making a big difference. Remember in Fernanda Contreras case, she had to qualify to get in, which she had to play several matches before that. Plus she was playing doubles, which they made it to the quarterfinals. So she was doubling up on her matches, but her heart rate, her heart rate was stabilizing and it kept dropping, kept dropping. And on a day of the match, I believe she was 37 beats or right around 37 or 40 beats per, per minute, which is an indication that she was fully recovered because typically that's where she lies when she's fully recovered. So we knew going into the final match, yeah, this is, she's going to have a great game as long as she doesn't mentally lose it. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with Paul Jubb. The lowest heart rate he registered was on the day of his NCAA, you know, championship match. Yeah. You know, we knew going in, yeah, he's cardiovascularly speaking. This kid is not going to get tired. Mm-hmm. You know, they're going to just keep going, which, you know, in, in both cases they won and they played outstanding yeah. and it didn't even seem like they had a workout. Like, they, you know what I mean? It was just kind of like a joke. They kind yeah. of walked right through it. And I think, you know, when you get to that level of understanding of what to do and it's all, it's not just one thing. There's a lot of little things that go into play, especially after, mm. you know, in Fernanda's case, she was taking hot Epsom salt baths every night. After the match, and I had her putting her legs up on the wall, massaging down the lactate buildup that was in there. And, you know, because when you massage it down, it's purified through the heart and it aids in recovery because everything's about recovery. Yeah. Yeah. You know, every if you can recover in a, in a tournament situation better than your opponent's guess what the odds are for you kind of winning. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Cause you're just making, if you're, if you're recovered, you're making better on court decisions. Yeah. You could get to balls that, that most people won't be able to get to. Mm-hmm. So your movement is there, you know, so you have cognition, you have movement, and then you have, you know, uh, 
an unbelievable supply of, of oxygen that is going to, you know, that you could outlast anybody towards the end of a match. Right. So what, what is going on there? I mean, so they're in a tournament, obviously most college players, uh, not necessarily playing tournaments. There, there's a few elite tournaments throughout the year and obviously finish with the NCAA tournament, but most of them are playing kind of dual matches Friday, Sunday, but, but, like what is happening there during a tournament so Fernandez played several matches singles and doubles it doesn't even seem possible that our numbers could go down you expect them to just increase slightly you expect them to go up in general just the stress of playing playing absolutely and and, uh, you know building up and the nerves and everything absolutely so so what is happening there is her body and mind just adapting to uh you know the, the circumstances, and it's it's kind of got into a certain rhythm or flow, or, or well, it just. I mean, it's you, amazing you, to me. You, that right, you're talking, you're talking, down. you're talking about a lot of things going on here, mm. but most of it is that the players are taking less stress off of themselves. Mm-hmm. So they're they're as these tournaments are going on. Of course, everyone's getting nervous, but these players are getting less nervous than the average player, and they're recovering better because they're able to sort of block things out. So that's where your mental toughness stuff comes in. Right. I believe this is the most important point for the mental side of things. Coming into these matches, both Fernanda and Paul were in great shape, like cardiovascular speaking, they were in really, really good shape. And the way we prepped them going into these matches mm-hmm. was very important. You know, how we, we, we allowed several days off, you know, a month out and then slowly rebuilt you know, back up so that they would be able to withstand this. So what you were seeing is that their fitness was actually getting better as the tournament play was going on. They were getting better. You you don't, you know, you don't understand. A lot of people don't understand. They think that when they're getting fitter, they think it's when they practice, Hmm. but it's really after practice that you get the benefits of your workout and understanding how much time in between sessions and understanding how to recover. Mm-hmm. So recovering from a session, you can't, you should really shouldn't look at it as recovery. In my opinion, you should be looking at it as preparation for the next day's training session or game or match or whatever it is. Right. So you should be looking at it slightly differently. It shouldn't just be about recovery for recovery's sake, but it's recovery and preparation mm-hmm. for next day's event. So you're trying to recover the body. In both cases, because their heart rates were decreasing, I knew that they were just getting stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. You know, I almost wish we had three or four more matches beyond that because it would have destroyed everybody. Right. You know, but but physically, I mean, I don't, you know, talent is, Mm -hmm. that's a different thing. But I'm just talking about from a cardiovascular standpoint. Right. Yeah. Um, so talking about recovery there then, so you you talked about Epsom salt baths. uh, These are just- Feet up on the wall, massage- are there other things that that you recommend players do I mean, after, there's, after yeah, practices or matches? yes, there's there's so much that I, I in the sport of tennis, I think it's it's really all about the match, and and a lot of players forget about the how to prep properly and how to recover, what to eat, how to eat, when to eat. These are, but it's very that's a very individualized when you start talking about sure. that, but you really want to, especially if it's a long, hot match, obviously hydration, but you want to also put some, uh, some complex carbohydrates in the system right away, mm-hmm. you know, cause you've got a short window for metabolism. And we talked about this earlier, everything's about metabolism. Mm-hmm. So you want that in for metabolism, but then you have to start repairing the body. Right. And these are, there's so much, there's so many different things that should be put. The best way I can describe it is, um, 
and, and and forgive me because I'm going to forget I forget this girl's name, but who won the Australian Open? Uh, what was her name? Oh man, yeah, I don't even remember what happened in my life yesterday. Probably, okay, so, uh, so it was the it was the it was the girl who just won. Yeah, Kenan. Ken, yeah, 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 that's yeah. it. Now. Okay, and what did what was the first thing you saw her do? She gets off the court, she yeah. towels down, she changes, and then she gets on a bike and starts spinning. Mm. And I was just like, wow, who's ever working with this kid? Is this is You need to be cooling down after these matches. You need to do this. Mm. Most people just walk off the court. Right. Let's go eat. Let's yeah. go whatever. You know, and that's, this is a, that's a whole nother mm-hmm. element that I don't even want to deal with where, you know, sports nutritionists need to be yeah. really engaged, you know, right. uh, because – to understand how to fuel an athlete properly. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are little things all athletes can do, yeah. but you really need to do a blood test and figure out where the deficiencies are. And then you can figure out how to set up a nutritional and then supplementation on top of that. Right. Right. So in an ideal world, then my match would finish. I'd hop in a shower, maybe change my clothes, then hop on a bike and, and work out the lactic acid a little bit. Yeah. And just try and stay loose and yeah. So to sort of so to put it into yeah. perspective, what you might want to do, um, the the first thing that I would do if I were an athlete, I would change. Mm-hmm. So whether it's a shower or you just change clothes, then maybe you you stretch, you roll out, you do that sort of a thing. Then you can hop on the bike and clear the legs, mm-hmm. sort of that. Okay. And then you could come back if you've got the time. I know this seems like a lot, but if you got the time, come back and do another short stretch and massage. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then, you know, yeah. now you, if you have access to hot and cold baths, I'm not opposed to that, but mm-hmm. that would be after you did your cool down session. Okay. So you've done your cool down and then you're getting into the, the, the hot, alternating, alternating between hot and, between and, hot and cold. And yeah. there's an actual process yeah. to that whole thing too. But again, it's right. an individual thing. Right. Yeah. You know, I found that I needed to be in about 37 degrees mm-hmm. of, of when I did the cold side mm. and it, boy, it worked. Yeah. So what is that doing? Vasodilation, vasoconstriction, mm-hmm. creating blood flow. It is stimulating metabolism. Another way to get to metabolism, to move blood through the system. Right, right. So worst case scenario, maybe it's just hot, cold shower if they don't. That's have, fine. Yeah. Yeah. Hot, cold shower. Just, okay. you know, no more than like 20 or 30 seconds at each okay. setting and yeah. do it maybe two or three times. I, I would probably, as much as I hate to say it, I, I finish on the cold. Yeah. Because yeah. it sucks. Yeah, but, I know, but, I know. Well, you know. Okay, so uh, then maybe can we talk a little bit about what a, you know, a sample conditioning week might look like? So I've got a, a team and, and we're, say we've played on, on, a, on a Saturday, we've taken Sunday off and now we've got a week ahead of us and, and maybe we have a match the following Saturday. What, what does conditioning look like for my team that week? Well, what I would say is if if you're taking Sunday off, which from my understanding, it's it, when the season's in, you're usually playing Fridays and Sundays, if I'm not mistaken. It depends on the conference. On the, it depends on the you conference. Know, the, the bigger okay. conferences play Friday, Sunday, but it, as the year goes on, yeah. It could you change. You might have a midweek match, it, but I'm, I'm gotcha. just, yeah, gotcha. in an ideal world. And, okay. So. Let's just say Sunday's, Sunday's off. off. We're let's back just on say, the courts Monday. let's say Sunday's off, but you know, yeah. so if Sunday's off, Mm-hmm. I wouldn't look at it if I were an athlete, I wouldn't look at it as off completely, but I would look at it as an active rest day. Mm-hmm. So in this particular case, you could do something really easy. Go for a little hike, no more than 20 or 30 minutes, maybe a, a walk, 
you know, but a consistent. What you want to do is you want to keep blood flow going and you want to clear whatever damaged scar tissue or lactate is still in the body mm-hmm. from the previous day's match, yeah. just in case you didn't get it in your cool down. So you want to do something, you want to move the legs, maybe 15 to 20 minutes on a spin bike with no resistance and high RPMs just to, just to move it. So you'll break just a little bit of a sweat and then that's it. That's all you would really need. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that you're, remember, when you're doing recovery, you're also prepping. So you want to make sure that on Monday when you come out to practice that your legs are are good to go. Now, that being said, if Sunday's your day off, I, in my opinion, Monday would be the highest intensity day other than gameplay. Okay. So that's if Sunday's your day off. Yeah. Okay. okay. Let's say Sunday's our day off. And right. You're playing that Saturday. And you're playing that Saturday. Yeah. Uh, Monday would be the hot, that would be the hardest to push. And I mean, you could push, mm-hmm. you know, provided that they're recovered, they're fully recovered and everything. Let's just say in a perfect yeah. world, they are. So you could, you could high intensity day on Monday, come back on Tuesday with a mid range intensity day, Thursday, uh, Wednesday, another higher intensity day. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Thursday, really light if you're competing on Friday. Okay. So what does light mean? What does mid-range intensity mean? Okay, this is where you start to get into zone training. So would be really low heart rates. So zone one, zone two, no more than 130 beats per minute would be light Mm -hmm. on the court. Would be light. Okay. So that's what you would do on a Thursday. And, and you could probably do whatever your workout schedule is. You could still do the time. Time doesn't, time is sort of irrelevant. You can go hmm. several, you can go an hour, two hours, three hours, but as long as you're keeping that intensity down. Hmm. Now, this is a tough thing to do because players want to play. Right. And it's really easy to get out of those lower zones. And this is where you could start to run into trouble because you can end up pushing too hard hmm. on Thursday and then there's something left that's not there that should be there on game day. Right. Right. So then what, what is uh so Monday, are they getting into zone five? Then, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's super hard. Okay. So like you can really, this is when let all inhibitions go. Mm-hmm. But remember the rest of the week, except for maybe Thursday or, or Wednesday, okay. yeah. Wednesday, um, you have to curb, you know, and as much as the coaches want to push, 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 this is where the coach has to be a little bit more attentive to what's going on. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of the coaches that I work with bring out their actual heart rate systems on the court so they can monitor what their athletes are doing and curb them. Mm-hmm. And a good coach will curb them. Okay, back off a little bit, you know. Yeah. You know, they'll pull them, they'll, they'll get them into a different drill or something like right, that. Right, right. So if if uh, we get to Monday and, and one of the players, let's say my number three player, uh, her heart rate's still high, you know, she hasn't fully recovered, am I just giving her the day off and trying to then go hard on Tuesday or does she slot back in or he's you never, back in? To- one of the things I've learned is you never try to make up. Mm-hmm. So okay. if you feel that a heart rate, uh, the players, and let's just say that you've got physical symptoms too, mm-hmm. they're tired, they're lethargic, mm-hmm. they're really tired. You might want to just give them a day off or go 15 minutes of something super, super light mm-hmm. and say, call it a day, go, you know, go to um, um, athletic training, get a massage, you know, mm-hmm. like just take care of their body because, and then put them on the same schedule 
like even if, so you skip one day no problem you never try to make up okay because it's when you try to make up that you run into problems mm-hmm. don't just and they have to be strong enough to just that's where mental toughness comes in let it go you don't need that day mm-hmm. it doesn't matter you needed this you we're giving your body what it needs today right. and that's the big thing right okay and then so what is maybe the the perfect pre-match routine so we get to we get to saturday we've got our match at yep. 12 o'clock say yeah what time are we getting up? When are we eating? What does our warm up look like? Are we doing two sessions? Are we in the gym? How, how you're you're asking that? you're asking an awful lot because this is stuff that I could recommend, but I don't do because I usually leave that up to the teams. Yeah, because I don't want to overstep my bounds. Yeah, but sure. when I was working with my athletes, mm-hmm. okay, we were usually at our events three to four hours ahead of time. Okay, uh, we usually ate. At, at, at a minimum of two and a half hours before competition, mm-hmm. but not, not in between. Now you could drink, that's fine, but food, solid foods that need to be di- digested because you need to digest. Mm-hmm. Then prior to our competition, an hour before we'd start our warm up, mm-hmm. and we might go 30 minutes of a consistent warm up, easy, very easy, just to break sweat. Okay. Then we would go into a stretch routine. And everyone would stretch the same way. And it wasn't like what you guys do in tennis, because what you do in tennis is really more social and a little bit of stretching. (laughs) Try to make that the other way around. A lot of bit of stretching and a little bit of social. So you're saying static stretching or dynamic stretching? You could do a little bit of both. But again, it depends on the athlete. I I would do a static stretch to hold for several seconds, release, then re-engage that stretch because you can go deeper into that stretch. Mm-hmm. So that's what that's what I would do. And usually about five to six seconds on the hold. Okay. And then you release for two or three seconds and then you re-engage for about three seconds and you come back. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then after that, I might bring them back and get their heart rates up just before match begins. Okay. So right before the flip, like they should be walking up to the mm-hmm. to the flip of the coin, sweating. Okay, not heavy, yeah. just light sweat. Yeah. So that's going to prep them well enough to hit the ground running. Because usually, what I've seen in, in tennis over the past six years is is people play into their matches. Mm. They just sort of build up, and usually, first sets. A crapshoot and see who gets what. But I believe if you come out firing, you could throw your opponent off in the first the first match mm-hmm. or the first set. Am I saying that right? Yeah, first set. First set. You've only been in tennis for six years. Yeah, I know, okay. I know. Well, it's like, <laughs> and sometimes I get confused. But but the in the first set. Now, if you throw somebody off in the first set, you've already got one up on them. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? You only need to be you only need to win one out of two where they have to win too. So, you know, the, the odds are in your favor mm-hmm. as long as you've done that. And I've never understood why our, our players just like in, in the sport of cycling, as soon as that gun goes off and let's just say there's a field of 150 to 200 cyclists. If you're not in the top 10, forget about that race. Cause mm-hmm. you're going to be stuck in the back forever. And so you need to hit right from the beginning. 
why don't you just do that in tennis too? Mm-hmm. Right from the beginning, come out firing. That's just my opinion. I mean, you're you're a coach. You know, maybe there's something I'm missing on that one. But to me, it seems like you've got the upper hand. Well, yeah. In an ideal world, we like our players to come out all, all guns firing. But some that, that's a balance as well. Sometimes they get a little too high and a little too excitable and they're spraying balls all over the place. And then sometimes they're just, yeah, they're, they're too low and, and takes a while to get well, going. Well, this and is, I think this is why. Yeah this preparation phase mm-hmm. an hour before is so important yeah. because it gets rid of a lot of the jitters. Yeah. So, so uh, you said they walk on the court sweating a little bit. What, what zone are they in? Are they, are they? Well, now they're, now they're or? coming down. So they're probably in zone two, walk yeah. into the, maybe zone one, okay. walk into the court, you okay. know, just kind of walking their way up yeah. to the toss. Yeah. But cause you know, it's going to start jumping yeah. all over the place as soon as match right. starts. So what are some of the best uh, warm-ups that you've seen as you've been looking around and working with various teams and coaching well, teams like that? You don't have to name names or anything. No, no, no. But it, some of the teams hit, some it, of the teams that I work with, yeah. have we, we've started to, to incorporate some of these ideas. Mm-hmm. And if it's a home game and they're, they're in their home facility and they have the bikes, they're on the bikes mm. right before the match. So they'll spin it up, stretch, get on, spin a little bit more, walk out to the court. Hmm. Okay. And, and how long have they hit balls for, say? 30 minutes? Yeah, it's something. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. That's usually how that plays out. Yeah. So you know, because you want them, yeah, because yeah. they need to get that as well. So they've done their 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 warm-up, their dynamic slash static stretching. Right. They've hit some balls. They've maybe gone and got something to eat, change clothes, and now they're on the bike a few minutes before they... That's right, before okay, they walk if, the, if they don't have bikes, if they're away... Easy jog, jump rope, okay. light jumping rope. That's something everybody can do, and it's inexpensive. Mm-hmm. In fact, you could probably do everything I'm suggesting by jumping rope. Mm. Yeah. Which I don't necessarily have a problem with that. Okay. Uh, you could do it with plyometrics as well. Okay. Um, the, yeah. So, you know, what, I, what I've learned over, over the last few years, I mean, it's interesting for me uh, being able to reflect upon 12 years as a, as a college coach and all the bad stuff and mistakes that I made and, um, you know, how, how I do things differently, I guess, if I ever went back to coaching, I have no intention to, but if, if I did, how, how things would look differently. And, and one of the areas I'm very clear on is, is, is this area, you know, the conditioning and, and monitoring the players to, to, uh, um, the extent that I possibly can, you know, given time constraints and budget and things like that, but having some type of monitoring system. But I, the last uh, podcast I did with an expert was with a, a guy named Nick Winkleman, who wrote a book called The Language of Coaching and a fascinating book and an amazing research. And um, I recommend all, all coaches read that book. But within it, again, the research shows that, that it's better for coaches to talk less, you know, and, and that that they should really just have one cue that they've worked on with their player for, for one aspect of whatever they're working on. And I think as coaches, we, we get into this, this groove feeling like we have to talk a lot, you know, the, the no pain, no gain. Hey, if we're not working really hard, you know, and crushing it, you know, we're not getting better and we've got to do these extra hours and this workout was too short and all the rest of it. And, and we get into this mindset and we don't really question it because everybody else is doing it. Um, so, so what advice would you have for coaches to start moving away from that mindset? Even if they believe it's worked for them, the sports science is showing that it's not the most effective way to train, train athletes, you know, over, over talking, giving coach, uh, players too much to think about. It's not the best way to, to coach athletes. So all the science is there, but as coaches, it's, it's, we're comfortable with how we've always done things. So how, 
how do you help coaches well, change that? Mindset? Right. Well, you, I think you just said it there. You've gotten comfortable. Mm. I don't think any coach or athlete should ever truly be comfortable. It's when you get comfortable that you become complacent and you're not really open to how do we advance either myself as a person, myself as a coach, or my athletes as athletes. Mm-hmm. How do we help them get better? Um, so, you know, as far as what I'm doing here is I'm trying to educate people. I'm trying to give them the tools to at least look at things a little bit differently, to, to change sort of the way maybe it's nothing. Maybe it doesn't mean anything. Maybe it's garbage or maybe there is something there. Mm-hmm. And it's just a little effort to, to at least look into it to see. So what I would say is, you know, for many of the coaches, try it on yourself, mm-hmm. get a heart rate monitor, Get a get the heart rate monitor book that I, that I recommend. It's not an expensive investment, and and just mess with it, hmm. because once you start to see the data, it begins to support everything that you're doing. Well, is our training scheme really working, or is this something that we've just been doing year after year and it seems to be successful? Mm-hmm. And is it appropriate for all my athletes? Maybe it's appropriate for two, but there's eight other players on the team, right? You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So, and, and, I, and I think from a coach, from if a coach truly wants to advance, you need to start thinking a little bit more outside the box. And it doesn't mean you're trying goofy stuff. Mm-hmm. Everything that I've done and I work with is all validated by the biometric numbers from the athletes. I'm not making this stuff up. Right. It exists. It's just been not interpreted very well. You know, in terms of the 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 industry and, and the systems that are out there for the teams, mm-hmm. because there really is no interpretation. Mm. The systems claim to be some claim to be intuitive. They're really not intuitive. They don't understand the enzymatic reactions that are occurring in an individual's body, and that needs to be monitored on a daily mm. basis. Yeah. So that's what I would recommend for the right. coaches. Okay. Well, that's great advice, and I think it's a great place to finish. Uh, where can uh, coaches learn more about what you're doing? What's what's your website again? Firstcardio.com. It's it's uh, first f i r s t uh, hyphen or dash cardio c a r d i o dot com. Okay, and you're selling. Uh, I, I know the webinar. You are selling the training recovery guide for coaches if, if any coach yeah. if any coach you know i'll just put this out there if any coach is interested uh this is another resource i'll just i'll i'll send you an electric copy for free okay. uh just as long as you don't distribute it out to the rest of the world well, you were but, charging the webinar folks, yeah and uh, i i, so I didn't charge charging these coaches i didn't charge them oh you're crazy no you know what <laughs> a part of part of my goal was to is to educate and, and, and I'm not, I, listen, I like to make a buck just like the next guy, mm-hmm. but I also believe karma comes back. And if somebody is really interested and really wants some guidance, mm-hmm. then I want to give it to them. So I, I'm willing to, to, to do that because I believe it pays off in the end regardless. Okay. Well, great. We need more people like you in the world. Why, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate it. Well, this was fun, Paul. Uh, first first uh, in-person podcast in the books. How do you feel? Uh, boy, it feels great. And I can't tell you, the environment that we're in has been perfect. Good. Good. Thank you.